would ask Neil, please, to come up. And uh, he's going to indirectly introduce this subject. Neil, most people will know of your former, former life. Um, <laughs> ah, well, you might want to tell us more. I don't, uh, in the banking context, right. yeah, okay. So, how long were you banking and what exactly did you do? Try not to be too complicated. Maybe I'll try and explain it in easy words. Is this working this evening? Yeah. Um, about 15 years altogether, and um, what I was doing was an area of finance called project finance. So it was lending to large infrastructure projects, things like power stations, things like Eurotunnel, that sort of thing. And what it involved was analysing whether the project itself was economically viable. So if you lent a lot of money to it, and we're talking sort of hundreds of millions of pounds, that the project itself will be able to repay that money to the bank. Right. Um, so that where be... the banks have gone wrong recently. They uh, haven't really analysed well, whether well, they can really repay. Right. We'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> so without, being, without any false modesty, you are saying that someone like you was responsible for millions and millions of pounds to invest? Yeah, usually there'd be a whole consortium of banks involved in these large projects, and you'd share out the the loan amongst those banks. Yeah. Quite often there would be one or two who would take on a large share and then sell it down to, to other banks. Okay. On a personal level, uh, my impression is that you were well, you were well paid. Uh, so was money very important for you as a motivator? Um, I think when I went into banking, you know, leaving university, um, I guess probably it was. Yeah, I was looking for a career which um, paid well. At that time I wasn't sort of a, uh, walking with the Lord. I wasn't... Right. Um, uh, very committed in my faith, and so, yeah, I guess money was, was a driver. I think later on, when I came back to faith in my mid-twenties, then it lost its importance, I think, yeah. It was, right. Uh, in the current atmosphere, with um, people like Sir Fred Goodwin, who had his car smashed and his house broken into, and having obscene amounts of money given to him, what's your, what's your take on that? What, how, what, people um, trying to find people to blame? Or is yes. That yeah, yes. I think, I mean, that, it, it's inevitable. And um, I think as we were looking at a bit this morning, if things go wrong, it's almost, we've got to find somebody who is responsible for that. And um, yes, I think, you know, the banks had um, a lot of a part in that. I think they made a lot of mistakes in terms of increasingly looking to make more profit. And if you need to make more profit and there's a lot of pressure on them to do that, then you inevitably take more risks. And I think that was one of the reasons for it. Uh, I think in terms of people blaming the banks, uh, it's almost saying, actually, it's not my fault. Um, I didn't have a part in this. But I think everybody did have a part in many ways because uh, it was the banks generating the economy and nobody complained when that was going well. No. Uh, it's only when things go wrong. Then so you're suggesting we're all to blame? In some ways, yeah. If okay. we're looking for a better way of life, um, then we need to play our part in it. And that, I think, means in terms of taking on a loan. You know, you don't take yes. on a loan that you can't afford to, to repay, for example. Okay. Um, uh, so, finally, Neil, how, how easy was it for you to give up money, uh, presumably earning a very uh, good salary, to become a pastor? Was that a big issue for you? Um, not really, I think, because if you're used to a lifestyle, if you're not living beyond your means, and I think if you are earning a lot of money, the temptation is to, as you earn more, to increase your lifestyle correspondingly. I think as a Christian, it's keeping that in check so you don't become enslaved to money. Uh, I mean, when I did give up, um, people would say to me, 
I really admire you for that. These are non-Christians. I would love to do the same sort of thing and go and do something I'd love to do. Um, not necessarily Christian ministry, but something else. But they would say, but I can't because I've got all these obligations, all these things around my neck. Um, and I think for Christian, we shouldn't have that. I think we should um, never be enslaved to, to money um, right. and take on that sort of thing. So, so when I was thinking about ministry, it wasn't sort of, um, I'm now going to be living a different lifestyle. That wasn't really a, a key issue for me. Um, there were issues such as, um, uh, you know, how was, I was living in Brazil at the time, and uh, how was I going to get back home to the UK and pay for everything to come back um, if I resigned my job? And it's interesting when you take a step of faith, when you trust in God and you think that actually this is what God wants me to do, then he makes it happen. And um, for me, what happened at that time was um, having decided to go along that path, the, the bank was taken over. And uh, the new owner of the bank uh, decided to close its Latin American operations. And um, we were made redundant. And uh, I spent the last uh, couple of months negotiating a nice severance package, which paid through for my studies. So um, it's interesting the way Lord right. works in those situations. So yeah. what you're saying is that for three years you were at Oak Hill, you were able to finance yourself entirely mm. and keep the family. Mm. So that was a, a blessing mm. in many yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. good. Okay. Right, well, Neil, thank you. That's very good. Yes, now we've, that leads us so well into um, our reading, which takes up the theme of uh, money and other things. Uh, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and uh, if you're using the church Bibles well, you have it in front of you there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read, for the sake of time, 3 to 10, and then 17 to 21. Uh, under the heading, as if you've got the NIV, it says, Love of Money. So it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 3 to 10, 17 to 21. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many fool, foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Then verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to serve. In this way, they will lay up 
treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposite ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And uh, now we're looking at money, and Neil has given us a good introduction to that. Money, whoever you are, whatever the perspective, money is a big issue. Uh, Last Monday, Hannah and I were in Oxford, and at least three times somebody came up to me and said, big issue, big issue, they want Money, they're trying to come off drug dependency and it's commendable to them that they want to. It's a big issue. But it's a big issue whether you're on the streets or you live in a palace or drive a Rolls Royce or whatever else. It's a big issue. So let's try to put it in perspective without in any sense trying to be complicated. There are two ways a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ, may consider his or her money. Two ways. The first, this is the way that you would think, how much of my money shall I use for God? That is one perspective. How much of my money shall I use for God? Or, the other perspective, entirely different, how much of God's money shall I use for myself. And the difference between the two reflects values, lifestyle and priority. Now I think that tries to put things in a proper context in terms of uh, how we think, how we relate to this uh, precious commodity. From a biblical p- perspective, money is what we can call amoral. By that, We'd want to say it is neither moral or immoral. It it is neutral in one sense. It is neither good or intrinsically evil, as some people say. But, thinking about money, our attitude toward it is the big issue itself. And it is our attitude towards money that determines the issue of it being either moral or immoral, good or ill. Let's try to get, again, just our perspective and our thinking a bit clear on this. For example, the Bible, Old and New Testament, is replete with examples of godly people spiritual people who were poor. Let's start with our role model, no less, who said, foxes of holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or John the Baptist, he is everything, I am nothing. 
He must increase, I must decrease. Or the widow's last penny in giving for the temple. Well, those are three that we are familiar with. But, equally, without any contradiction, the Bible is replete with examples of godly people who are very rich. Very rich. Not least, Abraham and Job. I suspect if we get that right, that Job could put Bill Gates into the shade. He was that wealthy. Or in the New Testament, Barnabas, who long after the day of Pentecost, during a particular time, was able to bring a portion of his wealth, he sold um, some land and, and, and gave it to the apostles. There are some people who tend to think that the apostles after Pentecost give all their money away and just depended uh, on uh, resources. So, here's another perspective. It is possible to love money without having it. And it is possible to have money without loving it. I don't know if that's going to come up in front of it. Yeah, just think about that for a moment. Because we tend to think in, in polarized positions on this. So it's possible to love money without having it and possible to have it without loving it. I know it's the classic thing, isn't it? The good servant and bad master. And it has mastered many people. And it has created within some people an insatiable drive and they'll never be happy, ever, or never be content. Other people can use it well, with integrity, although Neil perhaps wouldn't say it, but uh, so as not to put a burden on the church, in, because of his financial background, he's able to sponsor himself. Not everybody can do that. But it's a good use of resource. So from Timothy 6... I want us to look at three perspectives that are particular to believers that impinge upon the issue of money. And we're going to go through these quite quickly so that uh, tonight we won't be having too long a service and we're going to have communion. So let's try to move quickly on these. Three perspectives to believers about money. Number one, it is a reminder to those who are not rich. Secondly, there is a restraint, a restraining order on those who want to be. And thirdly, there's a rebuke to those who are. Now, let's just look at those three uh, as, as they unfold in the reading that we have. The first, a reminder to those who are not rich. Now, how do you identify with that? May I say all of us tonight, from some perspective, are rich. Okay, verse 6 to eight, but godliness with contentment is great, great gain. For we, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those words for me is always a reminder because they are said more often with me at an open grave or at the crematorium. And you can't help but think as to what legacy we are leaving and which we are inheriting 
in this life and the one in eternity. Godliness then, from the biblical perspective, is a higher goal than money. Now we might be hard pushed on that. Godliness is a higher goal than money. You see from verse 6, godliness merged, married to contentment equals great gain. Godliness and contentment equals great gain. And such a formula for success would never make the cover story of Hello or these um, or Vogue or these other popular magazines who unconsciously, we look and we read about them and they become our role models in the catwalk of life. If I have what they wear, if I drive what they drive, if I live where they live, then I'm surely going to be someone who is much more fulfilled. But the point of the the, the Christian disciple is this, that it cuts across that. So, wealth, as you have it in verse 6 and 7, is different to the world view of wealth. It's different. Hannah and I had uh, a meal with good friends on Friday. And... um, This man is quite a wealthy man and he took us to a nice restaurant. And in the course of the conversation he said to us, I have been told with the follow-up of my treatment at the Royal Marsden that the consultant said, go home and put your affairs in order. That's not an easy conversation uh, around the table, is it? Sometimes we are made to sit up And think about life. Wealth then is different to the world view. The Christian view of wealth is different to the world view. Just, I think this is our only cross. Yes it is. Uh, Matthew 6. Just to see what Jesus says. These are very familiar but it doesn't harm to look at them by way of comparing for the moment. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And what's, what's the point of this? It, no, you, yes, you can have both, but this is the point. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. So this wealth, uh, rust, cannot destroy. This wealth, thieves cannot steal. So those who are not rich, as the Apostle Paul was writing to, to a church where doubtless there would have been wealthy people and there would have been slaves. People who have a great deal, people who have very little. For those who are not rich at this given time, they are to remember from verse 7 to have an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. And they are also to remember this from verse 8, that they are to have a contented spirit. A contented spirit. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a reminder to those who are not. Now, obviously not exclusively, because it impinges on us, I'm sure. Secondly, a restraining order. I was playing tennis last Friday. Yes, Friday morning. And somebody was collecting um, refuse from the recreation ground. And at a certain point, I paused and said to him, you're doing a good job. He said, I'm doing my ASBO, he said. He's an older man with a ponytail. I said, well, you're still doing a good job. Well, here's a restraining order. How are we going to live out our lives? And it's a restraining order on those who want, come what may. Want is a, is a very powerful word, those who want to get rich. So verse 9 and 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And we have so many examples of that Indeed, as Neil was hinting, in the banking context. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, a restraint to those who want to get rich. Why the restraining order, you might ask? Verse 9, this term want uh, in, in, in the original is resolved, determined, a passionate obsession. A passionate obsession. And there is no restraint. When that becomes the driving force in a person's life, there are many casualties, certainly if you're relationships, uh, whether in the home, in marriage, or children, or in community, or church. Because quite frankly, you're just too busy. And these series of restraints, you notice, you fall into temptation and a snare. They are foolish and they are harmful. It's the self-destruct button that most people don't believe. Now, let me ask you, and I want to try to correct what has is often a misunderstood, possibly one of the misunderstood verses in, in the New Testament, certainly in Paul's letters, I think, and that's verse 10. Let's look at it very carefully, okay, because it has something important to say to us. Let's start by saying what it doesn't say, okay? You read verse 10 carefully. Note, it does not say money is the root of all evil. Okay, well, you say, I knew that. Okay, fair enough. Money is not the root of all evil. Nor does it say that money is the root of all evil. Okay? The love of money is a root. A root. People say, oh, the love of money is the root of all evil. No. There are, much, there are equally other giants, monsters, if you like, in our lives that eat away at us. Read the verse carefully, okay? For the love of money is a root. There are other poisonous roots in our lives too. This is a powerful one. This is the one we are concentrating on. So when people say, to you, yes, the love of money is the root of all evil, excuse me, no. 
It is a powerful root that, that, that will strangle relation. Yes, of course, but there are others. So the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And thirdly, a rebuke to those who are rich. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Well, verses 17 to 19, command those. This is a very strong word. Those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant. There is a sense of arrogance about some people who use their wealth to promote themselves. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides for everything for our enjoyment. And it is a lie of the devil, isn't it, that God is a killjoy? He's given it for our enjoyment. And the money that we have, we should enjoy. Not in, not, not in a self-indulgent way. And indeed, we should realize that a proportion of our money is spoken for already. It shouldn't in any way, destroy our enjoyment of it. Giving is good for you. Command them. It's the second constraint, restraint. You see it there, verse 18. To do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life in all its fullness. But here's a strange thing. It seems as if Paul had given these two, uh, a reminder to those who are not rich, a restraint to those who want to get rich. Surely that's enough. And then he, he cl- almost wants to close the letter by bringing in this marvelous doxology. Do you see it there in verse 14? Uh, You see, he says, um, keep this command without spot and blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an approachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Close the letter. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe just by the Spirit. And we miss the obvious. A rebuke to those who are rich. Just this little further PS, if you like. Is it an anticlimax? Is it inappropriate? Have you said enough about money? Why would he do that? Some of the Christians were for sure wealthy with big homes, Ephesus. Some were members of Caesar's household, part of the whole civil service structure and were influential and they'd come to faith. And they would use their homes for church meetings as we do in uh, home groups and so on and so forth. 
And there was the possibility of a misunderstanding. Yes, a reminder to those who are not rich. A restraint to those who want to get rich. But now, a rebuke to those who are. And it's this, and it's a strange way that I want to put it to you, I guess. That they shouldn't feel guilty about their wealth. Now, that is too negative. You should not feel guilty about your wealth. But learn to see it as a wonderful servant in the cause of Christ. And to be generous. And to take Jesus seriously. In, in the homes that we have. In the cars that we drive. In, in, in the wealth that we enjoy. To be generous. To learn to give. More blessed to give than to receive. Yeah, try that tomorrow morning with your colleagues. See what they say. But nevertheless, that's, that's where we're coming from. They shouldn't feel guilty about their wealth, but they should use it for the glory of God. Okay, it's one thing to say that they shouldn't feel guilty, but they should feel grateful. Because the truth is, God has entrusted it to us and to them. And they are to use it for the glory of God. And it is a good servant. And it can bring blessing to others. So the book comes to a conclusion and we have three words of advice for all of us. Whichever category now you might see yourself. The two are negative and the one is positive. Verse 17, the, neg the first negative is this. Don't be conceited. You find that with people who are wealthy. It's almost monumental conceit and arrogance. Conceit is one of the first temptations of money. It brings great kudos and prominence. We can become overly opinionated. And as a consequence, look down on other people who are not nearly as successful as we are. Don't. Just don't. And the second word here is this which you have in verse 17. Don't trust in your wealth for your ultimate security. Don't. Just don't. Uh, Proverbs 23 says this. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens and you've lost it. Don't trust wealth for your security. And the last and the final, which is a positive one, it's good to end on a positive note. Become a generous person. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Not arm twisting and all that sort of stuff. 
Become a generous person. And that hymn was chosen deliberately, not only because it links so well with the offering, but it's taken from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You who are rich beyond became so poor beyond. And, and the massive chasm between the wealth and the poverty of the Lord Jesus, that we, through his poverty, might become rich indeed. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know. You've experienced his grace. Yes, he was rich. He became poor. And we now, who, through his poverty, expressed here as a reminder to us at his table, have become immeasurably rich. And as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who confess that Jesus is Lord, the family of God. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You think of the building project that we want to engage on. What a great thing to give to the next generation as we have inherited this building. We can do good things. We can build God's kingdom by generous giving, by saying, God has blessed me. Now I want to be a blessing to others. A friend of mine is an accountant and he did my accounts for some 25 years without charging, which I was very pleased of. And um, he related to me two spinsters who were the beneficiary of a very, very large estate. In the course of him being the responsible for their wealth, having the power of attorney, looking after them, to the sadness of the elder sister, the younger, died, though they were in a care home at this time. And he went to visit them in this home and said to this lady, Look, if you live well beyond a hundred, you have enough to provide for you. And I've looked at your will. Why don't you, before you die, give to, and there were some 40 beneficiaries of her vast estate from small to large causes to individuals people who had blessed her in her full life some who were obviously by definition those who are still alive and she thought about it so he said I'll draft a letter for you you can sign it and so to all these various people through the letterbox came a note confirmed by the solicitor that you are to receive, and in some cases, a very substantial amount of money. Well, to her surprise, she had lots of visits just to thank her. Now, it's only an illustration that there is much blessing in giving much blessing in giving. Give while you can. 
Share while you can. As you have opportunity, use it. Be generous for the glory of God and the blessing of your family and the building up of his church. Little wonder Jesus said, give and it will be given to you in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And here's the clause, the measure you give is the measure you gain. I hope that we are good givers and willing receivers.